Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Diana Ricard, author of the book, The New True Crime, How the Rise of Serialized Storytelling is Transforming Innocence. Diana, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about this conversation with you and your listeners. True crime has a very long history in the media, whether it's, you know, news, storytelling, or even murder ballads. Humans are fascinated by it. But there does seem to uh, be some unique characteristics for the way discussions of true crime have started taking place, at least in American society. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about that and about how you came to study this and to write this book. Well, my book is about wrongful conviction and documentary storytelling. And it's important to me to emphasize that this is actually a project of critical criminology. And the true crime tradition, which, as you said, you know, goes back a couple hundred years in, in this country, is generally a conservative project in that it focuses on, you know, very sensationalized, lurid, you know, grisly crimes and, you know, the murderers among us. And there is a long fascination with the detective work involved in that, in the, you know, the sort sort of horror of the stranger, as well as the horror of the person in the family that loses it. And, you know, I've enjoyed those things as entertainment. I was not a avid true crime fan. Up until recently, the history of true crime was really true crime literature and true true crime books. And, you know, I used to watch the classic Law and Order. You know, I like McCoy as much as anybody else or hate McCoy as much as anybody else. But what happened was I became interested in wrongful conviction as something to look at academically in critical criminology. I have a friend who has been wrongfully convicted, who is still in prison in California. And when I started doing that research and reading up about it, I just came across so much good journalism and good documentary. I'd been familiar with with some of it. And I wasn't sure as a scholar what I could contribute to the conversation that was going on. At the same time, I heard people talking about serial and about making a murderer. And I remembered how taken I and many people I know were by Paradise Lost in the late 90s. And I said, you know, there's something here. Wherever I go socially, people are talking about Adnan Syed and, you know, like really investigate, invested and like passionate about, you know, outraged about different injustices that they believe they saw in that case. And so that's what led me to looking at this form of true crime. And I call it the new true for two reasons. One, I see it as a departure from traditional true crime in that it is critical of the justice system. It is critical of the state. It is not looking at, you know, the the pervert in our midst. It is turning the criminological gaze from the deviant to the state. 
and looking how state actors have violated rules and how state actors have victimized defendants. Um, that's, that is a thrust of these that I'm very interested in. The other reason I refer to this as the new true is because I specifically focus on cases that leave us with ambiguity. There are very interesting documentaries and podcasts about people who have been exonerated, like, you know, it's proved that they were innocent. And I put those to the side because something that I see in the conversations around these series is a real polarization on what people think, a, a real frustration that they're maybe not left with answers at the end. And, what, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, online discourses about it, people are really trying to grapple with how do we know what is true? This, this is the evidence that should, you know, make all the difference, or this should. And I, I see that as also something new in, in this kind of investigative reporting or this kind of storytelling. And then also, I, I said two reasons. I'll say a third reason these are new is that the history of these innocence documentaries were really feature length. The Thin Blue Line that came out, I believe, in 88 or 89, I remember seeing that in a theater that was revolutionary at the time. Not that long after was capturing the Freedmen's. These were feature-length movies in theaters. Since streamers took over, they discovered that viewers will watch 10 hours of one story. And that level of detail is new. That level of the attention that we're willing to give to these cases is new. I'm interested in that. I'm also interested in, you know, as a podcaster, the wave of true crime podcasts. I think that one thing a podcast allows you to do that you can't do when you're sitting down to watch 10 hours of a true crime documentary is you're listening to it while you're doing other things. Listener, I think about you when I record these episodes <laughs> and I wonder, I'm like, am I helping you fold laundry? Am I with you on your daily commute? Are you walking the dog? You know, it's media that people can consume while they're doing other things. And that's a personal theory I have about why, you know, some true crime podcasts really took off is, well, it provides some of the same content or, or intellectual stimulation that uh, one of these documentaries would, but you're not having to sit down and and pay attention and, and look at visual stimuli. You're doing whatever else you want to be doing. Uh, you described yourself in the book as not a podcast person. So what was it like to be listening to all of these true crime podcasts in addition to, you know, watching these documentaries in order to do your research? I think I have a similar hunch to you about why people listen to podcasts, how that's a different experience. And I think in the case of Serial, one of the things that made it so compelling is Sarah Koenig, like her voice and her kind of processing. And, you know, she she would talk to someone and then she'd be like, I don't know what this means. It, it, it could be, mean this, but then I think that. And her voice becomes very familiar and her way of thinking and asking questions becomes part of the story. So in the visual documentaries, 
the documentarian is not as much a part of the story and is not someone you grow close to. And so I, I think that that is very different. Something else I've noticed is in looking at other true crime podcasts that are, you know, not about innocence issues there, you know, as you mentioned, there's a ton. One that I found really engaging was My Favorite Murder, which is two, I don't believe they have any expertise, just just two women that enjoy true crime. They're funny, they're well, they're professional engaging. comedians. Yeah, they per- they're right, performers. Right, so they're comedians, but they do background research on the stories that they tell. So when you tune in to hear, you know, one of their true crime stories, you're also just like listening to them chat and talk about things. And that that's very, very different than these documentaries. And I think that podcasts have entered our lives in these in these kind of different ways like also not related to true crime the some of the podcasts i listen to regularly it used to annoy me the sort of like chit chat catch up at the beginning but now i kind of feel like they're my friends and i am actually interested you know in their whatever anecdotes so definitely podcasts are a different experience and when i first started Yes, I was not a podcast person. I resisted Serial for a long time because I didn't want to listen to a podcast. And, you know, I had to because of my work. I would listen very, very carefully, stop constantly to take notes. So that's not the way a regular person listens to a podcast. I assume not anyway. Yeah, but if anyone (laughs) out there is taking notes on, on my episodes, would love to see them. That sounds fascinating. Actually, you know, after doing my research on online conversations, it, it, it is quite possible that people are <laughs> stopping and taking notes um, because of the level of their involvement. But, you know, it's listening to podcasts is, becomes a habit. Once I became acclimated to it, I do listen to things, you know, more as my own recreational consumption. Are there any podcasts that you started listening to just for work that now you... Uh, would recommend to people or enjoy listening. You know, you mentioned that now now you will just turn them on and now you do feel more of a connection to the hosts. So the true crime ones, it's it, that is interesting. Maybe I got burnt out by them listening to this, listening to, you know, researching this. There are some good ones that are, the ones I listen to are long form storytelling. There are a lot of episodic ones Maggie Freeling is a journalist who has, you know, who looks at innocence issues every week, a different case. With these series, you know, they need to keep coming up with new takes or new stories, right? As, you know, commercial media products, they can't keep doing the same thing. And in Maggie Freeling has a a long form true crime documentary, a podcast called Murder and Alliance. And it kind of takes us to a different place. I don't, you know, no spoilers, but I thought that one was really interesting. So Murder in Alliance. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. And then we can talk. You can feel free to message <laughs> me if you... Much like you, I I actually went through a period of listening to a lot of true crime podcasts, but I found myself needing to stop. First of all, I was walking my dog late at night. And as anyone who has... Uh, consumed much of the genre, knows a lot of the stories that receive attention and focus are violence visited upon women. And the women who generally are profiled are, you know, white women 
often, but not necessarily, you know, middle class. But there's plenty of issues of race and gender that get implicated when it comes to whose story gets told. And I think that that's, you know, both that's relevant both for who is the victim and also who was charged with the crime, convicted of the crime, with the crime. Do you see a movement within the new true to look at that tendency that we've had in the media? And I will also say studies have shown that more attention is paid by the media as well to uh, victims who are white, victims who are women who are affluent, missing, if there are missing stories. You look at the numbers of missing and murdered Indigenous women, they are not getting the same attention as sometimes the one-off white women victims, things of this nature. So uh, that's a long way to ask it, but do you think that the new true is ready to reckon with this or doing anything to, I don't know, the fight back is the term, but shift our focus? I'm not sure that they are or that they're doing it well enough. What you point to is this need for the victim in a crime story, whether it's a wrongful conviction story or not, to be what we call an ideal victim which is usually on the younger side, white, conventionally attractive, and middle class. And that is a a terrible way that we decide whose victimization is worthy, whose whose victimization is, is wrong. And it's also a terrible way that we bestow the mantle of innocence and victim. And I talk about this, I think most comes up when I look at the Atlanta Murders uh, podcast and documentary about that. Most of these series, the victims were white and middle class. The West Memphis Three, the victims were white boys. The, the others were um, in, I'm sorry, in Serial, Heyman Lee is an Asian woman, but she functions, I think, in the way she's talked about. In fact, I read an article called The Whiteness of True Crime, and they were talking about her. And it's like, she wasn't white, but she was middle class. She was very pretty. She was a high achiever. She was young. So she kind of was able to, you know, satisfy our need for that ideal victim. But in the Atlanta murders, the victims were impoverished, mainly boys, impoverished Black boys in Atlanta. And that case was treated very, very differently. They weren't reported. They weren't taken seriously. It was, you know, 28 murders The parents were vilified for their poverty. So it is a different story and it it is talked about in a different way. So I don't think these series are doing much to push back on it in an explicit way. But I do think that they have in common just the fact that they're making us see the state as having far too much power and, you know, they they allow us to kind of see how people become vulnerable, you know, how marginalized people can become vulnerable to this state power. 
So to answer your question, no, I don't think I don't think they are critical enough. And I don't think they are changing that narrative enough. But I think they are creating audiences that are more capable of thinking differently, of grappling with things rather than assuming things and, you know, of challenging some of the status quo. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our advertisers. When we return, I'll still be speaking with Diana Ricard, author of The New True Crime, How the Rise of Serialized Storytelling is Transforming Innocence. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library podcast. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, here with Diana Ricard. And Diana, something your book made me think about is the difference between crime journalism and, you know, court reporting and these new true storytellers in who they're talking to, who their sources are. You had a great quote in the book that I'm going to read really quickly that, you know, makes me think of this as well. Although true crime is always constructed through techniques of minimization, exaggeration, speculation, and point of view, both consumers and creators believe it to depict just the facts. But, you know, as I can say as a journalist, the facts depend on who you're talking to and who you're getting it from. You mentioned earlier in our conversation there in the past has been a more conservative bent to stories of true crime because the people who were being interviewed about it were generally the police or, you know, the court system, the government uh, often was passing along these stories. If you are a court reporter, you generally have a longstanding relationship with prosecution, with defense attorneys, with court staff. You know them. You have worked with them on a number of stories. Uh, Police will do press releases, uh, the attorney, the state's attorney will do a press release and, and you quote from that. You may have an interview with the victim's family. It is not likely that a defense attorney is going to let you talk to their client. On the other hand, the true crime people are coming at this generally in the cases you're looking at. You know, these are innocent stories. So in general, the person has been convicted. And what do they have left to lose? If, and they're agreeing to work with the new true storyteller, but the victim's family may not be willing 
to talk to them. It is unlikely that the prosecutor who, you know, did the case is going to talk to this storyteller. It's just very unlikely that the state, because it feels it's put this to bed or has convicted someone for it, is going to participate in the interview. So you're hearing from different sets of people. And I would love to hear your take on that, how you think it influences things and changes things for just the general public to go from these two sets of information. So my hunch is that when people make a documentary, they are cognizant that they are presenting a version of truth rather than the truth. But I also think that they lose sight of that. And one thing that I think a lot of these series do that is very smart is they make the media around the case part of the story. So one kind of trope that they use is they will show people as the cameras are being set up, you know what I mean? Like as they fix their tie and make an off comment. So seeing people on the court steps, getting ready to present what they want to be their version of truth for the journalists and the media is something that they are, you know, de facto looking critically at by showing it. And absolutely, you're right. Most news stories are coming from official sources. And in most of these, the prosecutors do not want to talk to the filmmakers, nor do the victims' families. This is in some ways valuable, in some ways quite troubling, because by turning the gaze to the state as the bad guy, there is a sense that they are minimizing or delegitimizing or pathologizing the victim's rage and pain and outrage, because quite often the victims are seen as, the victims' families of the murdered Mm -hmm. people are seen as like preening for the camera or, you know, sort of manufacturing a sense of outrage or having their outrage expressed in such strong terms that they don't come off well or the editing choices of the documentarians are not making them come off well. And by well, I mean they're coming off purely from their sense of outrage and pain and needing vindication and needing retribution. And as a criminologist and as a professor of criminal justice issues, retribution, whether we like it or not, whether we're proud of it or not, plays an important role in our criminal justice system. So in most of these series, the original series is then part of a a follow-up and you do hear how victims felt about how they were portrayed. So it it does show these different aspects or these different viewpoints or these different camera lenses on the phenomenon. In many of my episodes, I ask the author of the book to read a short excerpt so people can get kind of a feel for the language. And we selected an excerpt I'd love for you to read because I think that it does a great job of illuminating some important things about this group that you call the New True. The New True all seek to humanize subjects deemed monstrous through the demonizing mechanisms available to criminal justice. 
These series present dramatic narratives around the process of assigning guilt through trials, the mechanism employed by the law to designate an individual as deserving of punishment and to legally strip them of their rights. In this analysis, meaning my analysis, we see that these series look critically at the way deviance is leveraged in service of exclusion. The conviction in these cases are based largely on character, in essence, enacting punishment, not for what the the defendant did, but for their, quote, nature, so that we can be safely disposed of as legal slaves stripped of civil rights and status. Although the filmmakers do not unequivocally strong arm audiences into conclusion, their perspective points to the injustice of using such patently prejudiced and biased beliefs that are counter to the ideals of our system and hinder the functioning of healthy democracy. Wrongful conviction can potentially expose serious cracks in the system and undermine the legitimacy of punishment, exclusion, and penal harm. By making visible the manipulation of social deviance categories, the new true bring the criminal justice system into sharper focus. The enormous outcry and viewer engagement surrounding these cases and the role both have played in the proceedings and outcomes of individual cases demonstrate that these series have an effect in the real world. All have had powerful emotional impact on viewers, some who could not sleep at night after watching. Altered viewers' behavior created demands for institutional action and contributed to continued legal proceedings. The series makers importantly shine light on how deviance is unjustly used in convicting the innocent and help viewers to see this as inappropriate extra-legal information. In this way, they expose and critique popular and sadly enduring cultural beliefs about deviance, evil, and exclusion, pushing the boundaries of true crime in an era currently being shaped by Movements for Criminal Justice Reform. Well, thank you for reading that passage that uh, in the hardcovers on page 127 to 128. We're going to take another break to hear from our advertisers. When we come back, let's talk about that real-world impact. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm here with Diana Ricard. So, Diana, you have mentioned a couple times the audience and not just the general audience, but the involved audience, it's time to talk about Reddit. So I think that there have been groups communicating online about uh, various, you know, crimes and mysteries and cold cases since it was, you know, text-only chats, IRC, uh, message boards. But the Reddit communities that have grown up around some of these innocence cases are so fascinating. And I would love to hear you talk about what you found when you delved into, say, the Making a Murderer channel or, or any of the others. What, what were your discoveries? Well, I had not been a Reddit user. I, I use Facebook socially, but I have not, you know, followed groups around interests that I care about. 
So I have a chapter called Judging the Jury that looks at these online forums, like including Rotten Tomatoes, where people review and discuss these issues. And by far, most of the discussion and the most substantive discussion is on Reddit. I had been worried about Reddit because I, you know, thought it was like right-wing extremists saying horrible, violent stuff. And I also thought it was, you know, people screaming at each other. And I was quite surprised. I found on these forums or these threads, channels about these series to be incredibly thoughtful. Like in my chapter, I will say how many words a post was. It would be like 1,400 words. These folks, and and they're not typical viewers, but they do show us how people are thinking. These posts were incredibly thoughtful, incredibly detailed. The discussions were polite. People who didn't agree were not insulting each other. And I saw comments in response to a very long, you know, thread saying, thank you so much for this. I hadn't thought about it this way. This really changes how I'm thinking of it. Or, you know, you bring up the date book in Teresa Hallback's car. I didn't realize how important this was, but you're showing me that. And I thought that was very interesting, you know, just that humanity is not as bad as I thought it might be. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons I was excited to talk to your audiences, uh, you know, a legal podcast is because I feel kind of hopeful about people's understanding, the general lay public's understanding of legal concepts. And even if they're getting that understanding from entertainment. So people on Reddit would really, you know, scrutinize in such detail the evidence that in the shows that are provided already in such detail. And people on Reddit did talk, like when I was talking about it, uh, Atlantic Monster, they did talk about the racism and the racist way that case was framed. They also look, a number of the defendants in these come from poor rural environments where they are, you know, the victim was more middle class and the way that, you know, rural poverty becomes cloaked in, you know, these kind of deep beliefs about evil. The Redditors saw all that and were critical of all that. And one of the reasons I had that chapter in the first place was because I look so deeply at the way they present evidence and, you know, kind of do a textual analysis of, you know, what the arguments are that the the defense is making, the prosecutor is making, that the documentarians are making. And I wanted to see what was pervasive, you know, what was persuasive to users, to Redditors. And it was just very illuminating. Absolutely. I will say uh, Reddit is like a lot of little federations, you know, channels are run by volunteer moderators. So if you were looking for some screaming or horrifying right-wing viewpoints, you could find that. But yeah, no, I think that it is always interesting to see 
how much time people are prepared to devote to analyzing this. You say a 1,400-word post, someone spent their spare time putting that together. And one thing I will say is when it comes to innocence, just to ground people in my own experience and where I'm coming from talking about this, when I was in grad school for journalism, I was at Northwestern University, uh, which has a very famous uh, innocence project, which I did not work with directly, but was around. And while I was in grad school, it coincided with the governor of Illinois deciding that since there had been 14 exonerations at that point from Illinois' death row, something was deeply wrong with the Illinois justice system's capital cases. And eventually, he froze the death penalty. Eventually, he exonerated everyone, converted the sentences to life in prison, and Illinois no longer has a death penalty. A lot of the exonerations, you know, many of them were DNA, but as you mentioned in the book, that's actually not how many of the innocence cases end up being solved or coming out. It is often, you know, misdeeds, et cetera. Many of the concepts that were deeply puzzling to people in Illinois in 2003, 2002, 2004, as all of this debate was happening, I think are now more generally accepted, and it's because of the popularization of them. I'm going to bring up an example, which is false confessions. In the early 2000s, as we were having this public debate, I heard over and over again, but no one would falsely confess. Who would say they'd done something? How could you say, yes, I killed my sister? When you didn't, when you were innocent, who would do that? But I heard the interview tapes from a case that sticks with me back in in grad school where they were um, playing this for us to show us how this could be done. Uh, the case was was very sad. It was a it was a teen boy. And in the hours of questioning and interrogation, he became convinced because the police officers kept suggesting, well, you know, have you ever, have you ever kind of done something without, you've ever sleepwalked? Have you ever done something without, you know, really fully knowing it? Became convinced he'd killed his little sister. And he, you know, it was proven that it actually had been, I think it was an intruder, but showed me, oh yeah, false confessions happen through a variety of ways, but that was not publicly accepted. But false confessions now I think are more generally understood as a phenomenon. I mean, that's my perception. Is that is that what you were seeing in some of these true crime podcasts that people were more accepting of instances like false confessions or forensic evidence that turns out to be bunk, you know, junk science? Sadly, not enough. So false confessions, I think now there is a greater understanding that they happen. We've had video of seeing, you know, what is wrong in making a murder. I don't know if you saw that one, but the video coerced investigations of Brandon Dassey are excruciatingly, they're so excruciatingly painful. It is impossible for me to believe that someone could watch that and think that that was a legitimate confession. 
And there are others that we see in these series. And there is a lot of evidence and understanding of the different ways these coercive techniques work to elicit a false confession. There's a lot of knowledge about, you know, who is more susceptible to to doing that. And yet, as far as I know, still, a confession is one of the most persuasive things to a jury, even juries who see those tapes. So maybe there is a growing awareness that these things happen and what's wrong with them. And maybe jurors are somewhat more, you know, questioning of of what they're seeing. But this is something that is just incredible to me, that people do think you wouldn't confess to something you didn't do. And if you confess, there must be something that you did that made you. Even watching, you know, something that is just so tragic and sad. The other important cause of wrongful convictions is witness misidentification. It's very powerful. If a witness comes into a courtroom and says, yes, that person there, that woman with the short hair and glasses and the polka dot sweater is absolutely the woman that assaulted me and did this to me. And I made a point of, you know, committing her face to memory. And this is what happened. People are wrong when they say that. There is so much evidence that for a number of reasons, people make that mistake. And yet it is very hard to convince a jury that that could, that that happens. The case in Making a Murderer is actually about Stephen Avery, who had been convicted who was released after 18 years in prison for raping a woman that, you know, had said that, like, I know this is him. And it was later, DNA showed it wasn't him. And she was horrified. She lives with terrible guilt. She was being completely honest. She, that, you know what I mean? That was, that was her impression. She believed it at the time and she was terribly wrong. And, but this still happens because the the people asserting that this is true really believe it. You know, like something has happened cognitively and in their memory function and in the image, images in their mind and recreating things. But in in terms of the documentaries, they show how messed up interrogation procedures and messed up eyewitness identification procedures, including like allowing a witness to see a potential suspect, like walk down the hall before she sees them in the lineup. There are all these things that are clearly messed up, you know, to someone doing critical thinking that these series show. And often, you know, much like with uh, the field of of psychology and recovered memories, it's not necessarily even, you know, that the the police intentionally were trying to achieve a particular outcome so much as it was, we thought that this was okay, or we didn't think about how this would twist in someone's mind. You know, many, many therapists in the 80s thought that they were genuinely uncovering examples of uh, satanic ritual abuse when they were introducing memories into people's 
hints. Yes, and much more, you know, sort of more subtle things than that are constantly are constantly happening, including, you know, just a slight way of phrasing a question when a, a witness is identifying something or, you know, just a way of, you know, putting one Polaroid in front of the other or mentioning a piece of information, you know, that only the perpetrator had that that gives it to them. And this is just so well documented, but like the false confessions, it goes against what juries see as common sense. So I would love, because, you know, you are a criminologist, you, this is, you're in academia, you must have, um, you know, many connections within the, you know, innocence community. What do people who work on exonerations in your experience, feel about some of these new true shows? Do they see this as helpful? Do they see it as separate for what they're doing? Do they try and when they have a case they think needs public attention, try and get that attention through one of these? I'm just interested in what your perception is of how the innocence community views some of these more pop culture products. I think with some Uh, some sense of ambivalence. Anybody who is an expert deeply immersed in something is going to watch a representation of it and see the things that they got wrong or that they, you know what I mean? Sure. So there's, I think there is that kind of, you know, knee-jerk protection frustration, but they do also see that, that it is helping, that if nothing, it is providing case studies If nothing, I mean, I think these have done a great job of promoting all the different innocence projects and getting people to want to be involved in innocence projects. I mention in my book a real-life housewife from Orange County who watched one of these and became outraged, and she's an attorney, and she volunteered her time at the California Legal, Legal Project. So... That is definitely, definitely helpful. Also, these documentaries do a really good job of including important experts as talking heads. If you if you watch these, there's this like ecosystem where you see the same uh, questionable forensic scientists in one case after another, and you see the same innocence movement scholars. And there's the attorneys who represented Brandon Dassey and his appeals, because he he was the teenager that just had such a painful, painful false confession. Uh, They do a podcast on false confessions, like episodic looks at different cases of how this works. And when it comes to questionable forensic science, one of the, I, I was thrilled to see you shout out in the book, PBS Frontline, the ABA Journal was one of the first uh, print publications to question bite mark uh, forensics, which many claims have been made about being able to match bite marks in a sandwich, for example, to a bite mark on human skin. And it's, it's, it's bunk. It's not real. But places like PBS Frontline have shown a light on some of these questionable forensic things. Arson science used to just be, you know, basically a bunch of retired firefighters and old wives tales. And, you know, I don't think that all of them meant harm. They probably just felt that they had an expertise. 
but the way they thought fire behaved is not accurate now that we have institutions who study fire and fire science, we can show that's not how an acceleration point looks. That's not what happens when there is a flashover. Things of this nature. And I do think that places like PBS through programs like Frontline have done a good job of trying to bring that to light and hopefully stop some of the the questionable forensic science from going forward. Yes, and that that is starting to happen. PBS has been great. I'm thinking of a I mean, I'm, I'm sure maybe it's 12 years old, the real CSI does a real good job of looking at these different, different forms of either discredited or very questionable forms of forensic science. The bite mark analysis has been implicated in a very famous exoneration of two men in, in Mississippi. There is also now a real understanding of hair fiber analysis and what is what is wrong with that. I, I believe for quite some time when hair fiber doesn't provide DNA evidence, it doesn't provide any evidence. You know, other like super high close-ups of a hair follicle is not going to provide enough forensic evidence to take someone's life away. Which I think, you know, I, I when I run my hand through my hair and I look at the strands, even when I just did that, I see that the strands are different widths. One may be super curly, the other's not. I think that some of these, once it's explained, yeah, that's not real, you can think your way through to be like, yeah, it doesn't seem, that doesn't seem like it would provide much information. Totally, totally. And then to go back to my admiration for investigative journalism, I remember a decade or two ago, the New Yorker magazine had a piece like to Texas execute an innocent man. I believe that was David Allen Cameron. Yes. And it, and also I think maybe PBS did a follow-up on that, on that article. But it explains what you just said about these changes in, you know, fire analysis and, and the way it did used to be considered, quote unquote, an art, you know, like an, a fire investigator would go in and sort of use their intu- intuition or their experience. But you know, not really these scientific methods of analyzing and how kind of informal it was. And I think related, another thing these documentaries are exposing is this real lack of professionalism, you know, in these rural areas where the law enforcement aren't particularly well-trained and everybody knows each other and, you know, no one is going to contradict. Well, and the coroner doesn't have to be a doctor. In so many jurisdictions, the coroner is an elected position without any sort of, you know, degree required. You ran for coroner and you're going to be the one who says how someone died. There just aren't enough medical examiners, uh, you know, qualified medical examiners out there to look at everybody. Absolutely. And some of these small rural communities that are, they're depicted in an innocent man and they're depicted in making a murderer are just really distrustful of of people that, you know, they haven't been working with for 20 years. And, you know, I mean, one person writing about the, the prosecutor's office and the law enforcement in Ada, Oklahoma, which was where the 
cases regarding the invisible man took place was like, this is deliverance country, you know, meaning the movie. There's a difference in resources. Um, I grew up in a town with 400 people in it and uh, there wasn't a grocery store, let alone a forensics lab. So, (laughs) right. Well, Diana, I want to thank you so much for coming on to talk with us. Obviously, uh, readers, listeners who are looking to read more can pick up The New True Crime, How the Rise of Serialized Storytelling is Transforming Innocence. But do you have any other recommended reading for people who are interested in this as a topic, how The New True is influencing innocence? Would love to hear any recommendations you have for the listeners. Well, there are two books, uh, general nonfiction, not scholarly books, that I think touch on some things that we didn't talk about, which was the sort of journalist subject, documentarian subject relationship, which is, you know, this gets to that objectivity we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Like the documentarian Andrew Jarecki, who did the the jinx, the Robert Durst case, who ended up kind of proving that he was guilty based on something he said on the subject said on a hot mic. Mm-hmm. That is a real twist on this idea that most of these defendants who are participating in these interviews are expecting the documentarian to be their champion and their advocate you know, not just reporting the facts. And that's why they want to participate in that. There's a book that explores that kind of journalist-subject relationship in depth. It's an older book by Janet Malcolm called The Journalist and the Murderer. Janet Malcolm, read anything she's written. Honestly, Janet Malcolm is a queen. Absolutely. Then we were talking at the beginning about the interest in true crime by far, readers of and consumers of true crime are women. There's some speculation on, on why that is the case. But Rachel Monroe wrote an incredible book called Savage Appetites that looks at what are the types of fans of true crime. I mean, it's a great read. There's really fascinating portraits in there. So those, I think, more for a general reader would be very interesting. So one thing that I definitely want to address before we let you leave and get back to your your day is when I read your conclusion, you seemed deeply unsettled and a little pessimistic about some of the things you found in the research of this book. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about, about that and any any perils you see or reasons for you to come away feeling uneasy about the way that we narrate these wrongful conviction stories? Yes. There is an inherent problem with focusing on innocent defendants in the context of criminal justice reform and the injustices and oppression that happen through our criminal justice system. Our punishment system is far more severe than other peer nations. Though what we do to our prisoners and our inmates and our vulnerable populations who are over-policed and harassed and stopped and frisked, 
these stories kind of let us off the hook because of the way they, of who they humanize. And in a way I can see them as making claims on who's deserving of punishment. And I think that is a political issue um, and a moral issue. You know, it doesn't let us address, is, is putting people in solitary confinement for five years okay, even if they did do something? And this is something that is part of our larger punitive culture. We were talking about the, you know, the death penalty states that have the death penalty also seem to have much higher rates of wrongful conviction because there's this belief in a crime control model that is get the bad guys no matter matter what you have to do you have to plant evidence you have to bully the perps get it whatever you have to do that's only going to increase wrongful conviction but it is also increasing unjust punishment. And there is a documentary that I found really helpful with that called Free Meek on Amazon Prime that, that expands what do we mean by innocent? Who are we including in that? People, you know, who are, I believe, unjustly managed and controlled in an oppressive way by the conditions of probation and parole or arrest warrants and, and all of that. And that is not in there. And also, um, I think the other, the unease you're referring to is my sense of post-truth politics and this kind of weird existential place we find ourselves in where truth is relative. So the same thing that drew me to these documentaries, that they give us a way of sitting with ambiguity, of looking at two versions of the truth, like looking at a fact that is interpreted one way by the defense and another way by the prosecution, interpreted one way by the defendant, another way by the documentarian. I think as much as I find a lot of value in that. I am worried. I feel like we're, when I wrote that book, I thought we were in a post-truth moment. I'm wondering if we're getting into a post-moral moment. So I think that is the unease you were picking up on. Well, thank you so much for that. And if people wanted to uh, engage with you more about these or pick up any of your other uh, research, you've written another book as well. Uh, how can they reach out to you? Do you have a website? Uh, an email address you'd like to share? I'm an associate professor at Borough of Manhattan Community College, and my email is there. I'm happy to say it's D-R-I-C-K-A-R-D at bmcc.cuny.edu. And I also want to say to your to your legal listeners, there's some chapters where I talk about the nitty-gritty of legal concepts, such as the presumption of innocence, the burden of proof, and Alfred pleas, and the the role they have in these series. And again, I think they are discussed both in these series and in Reddit forums and discussions outside the series in pretty nuanced, sophisticated ways. 
Well, thank you to you, Diana, and to you, my listeners, for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast listening app, and you can rate and review. That helps us out a lot. And you can also reach out if you have a book that you would like me to cover in a future episode. You can reach me at books at abajournal.com. Mm-hmm.